So I thought for the first sermon of Lent, we would do something really fun, like talk about sin. Original sin. Sound like fun? Good. My, my dearly departed grandmother, God rest her merry funny soul, used to tell me how she would uh, ask the old preacher, this was back in the 50s, she would ask preacher Dr. Leathers back in Henderson, my hometown, what he was going to be preaching on that Sunday. And Dr. Leathers knew my grandmother's sense of humor and he looked at her and he'd, he'd put his finger in his mouth like a hook and he'd say, sin. What you preaching on, preacher? Sin. It's our funny preacher way of never telling people what we're going to preach about. Okay, so let's begin. Original sin. The doctrine of original sin. The Romans text today, with a couple of others, lies at the very heart of the doctrine of original sin. Doctrine just means a a teaching of a belief or a set of beliefs. Original sin is one of the most important and often contested doctrines across the church's history in both the West and the East. I'll spare you the details of the disagreements between Protestant and Catholic and Eastern Orthodox But there are some general interpretations that can help us make sense of what's at stake for us. It may sound like a distant academic principle to consider the doctrine of original sin, but trust me, pay attention to some of the details and how all of this works out, and it can be freeing for you. It can be part of your reception of God's free gift to you. First, what is it? What is the doctrine of original sin? The simplest way to say it is the way that Paul says it here in Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death came through sin, so death spread. Death spread to all because all have sinned. Adam's disobedience introduced sin and death, both into God's good creation, and both creatures and creation have been fallen ever since. Remember when God finished creation, God stood back before taking a day of rest, looked at all that God had created and said, indeed, it is very good. Adam's sin corrupted God's good creation. Every human being and all creation ever since has been both participant and victim of Adam's original sin. That's the one, the original sin that started it all. After which everything unraveled, even in ways Adam didn't know or intend. Sin took up itself in its own power and began to spread. The church's greatest minds have gone to the mat over how to interpret original sin. What really happened with Adam? What happens to us because of Adam? Augustine is the most famous and probably the most complicated voice on this subject. Augustine helped the church articulate a compelling tradition about sin. 
he helps us understand sin's sheer magnitude. How thoroughly it corrupts us and how devastating sin is and our sins are. However, if we associate original sin with the idea that we're guilty from birth, we can also thank Augustine for that. He, and this is where I depart from Augustine and many theologians and Christians depart from him on this particular point. He claimed original sin was so serious that even infants who were not baptized were doomed. This idea still persists in the church and remains a stumbling block for those who have doubly grieved the loss of a child based on this view. So I'll be clear, we may all emphatically love Augustine and emphatically disagree with Augustine, which is hard to do, about this particular claim. If for no other reason than that in this text read today, Paul clearly indicates that death claims those who have and who have not sinned. So scripture and tradition teach us to consider sin in different ways. The most popular sense, and probably the way that most of us grew up thinking about sin, was to think about it in terms of sins. The psalmist says, For I know my transgressions and my sins are ever before me. When we disobey God, we break commandments, treat others as we would not want to be treated. These are sins, transgressions. And yet we may distinguish between being guilty of sin and being corrupted by sin. I don't make this distinction to absolve us from being guilty of certain sins. Rather, it's to declare the truth about sin that, that often goes unnoticed. Here's where it gets interesting, especially if you've grown up thinking this way. When we think of sin only as sins, the things that we've done or that others have done to us, we miss out on a more expansive sense of sin. Sin. That is sin with a capital S. Sin as an unruly power. A principality, a domain, a dominion, as Paul calls it. Pay close attention to the word Paul uses here, the word spread. Because of Adam's sin, death spread to all. Death spread to all because all have sinned. This word is almost so timely, it's painful. But I wouldn't be the first preacher to use low-hanging fruit to make sense of a complicated concept. Sin began with Adam's transgression and quite literally spread out like a virus that contaminated all of creation. Sin spreads, it passes through, it traverses, it metastasizes. We can think of this dynamic in a number of ways that are immediately relevant to us. I'll take the low-hanging fruit first. The coronavirus for example, began in a specific location by accident, and we should not listen to the conspiracy theories that say otherwise. Uh, there's a rumor that it started out of a lab or something like that. Uh, while I'm on this, I should say, if you haven't given up anything 
for Lent yet. Try giving up cable news. <laughs> You'll feel so much better. But pastor, how will we know the news? Well, we could read the news, for one. But back to the coronavirus. Anyway, due to its inability, due to its ability to remain undetected and its host being asymptomatic for weeks, it has been able to spread across the world. The picture Paul paints of sin, sin spread, is directly analogous to this dynamic. By the way, thanks for coming today. <laughs> I was worried there were going to be like three people here today. Okay. So it spreads like this. It spreads in spite of our desire to contain or quash it. This is what capital S sin is like. It spreads. Or consider just one factor contributing to the climate emergency. Scientists are becoming more aware of the seriousness of methane's contributions to global warming. Methane is a major byproduct of fracking for natural gas. It is more potent and dangerous than carbon dioxide. And methane is like the melanoma of greenhouse gases. It spreads more rapidly, exponentially. It does far more damage, even though we can't see it in the air and will not see its most drastic effects for decades. Or more simply, consider how a rumor works in a small community. I still remember being in high school and a really mean, popular kid starting a rumor about another kid who wasn't as popular. He was an easy target. And it affected the way that we all thought of this kid, our classmate. It was begun out of spite, really out of no reason that I could detect, but it changed the way that everyone thought of him and everyone interacted with him. And the thing about it was the rumor wasn't true. But the damage it did was real. It began with one conversation, and it spread. Sin. Through this spread, Paul says, capital S sin exercises dominion over us. I still, that, that, that is to say, sin and death rule over us, even when we may be less guilty than others. Or in the case of young children, not guilty at all. This dominion is too powerful for us to overcome. Adam's sin unleashed a fury against which we are all powerless. When Adam sinned, he made human destiny to be sin and death. And when we come to the full realization of this, as Paul did... Even in the way sin exercised dominion in his own body, the only question remains is, as Paul asked, O oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? The whole Christian religion, says St. Augustine, may be summed up in the intervention of two men, the one to ruin us, the other to save us. Who will save us from this body of death, this rule, this power, this dominion 
of sin and its unstoppable spread. Who will save us from this? Immediately after his baptism, Jesus is, leaves civilization, goes out into the wilderness, and immediately begins to be tempted by the devil. Each time Jesus puts an end to sin's spread and begins to foreshadow just how he will do it for all of us. First, he's tempted to turn stones into bread. He answers with scripture, man does not live by bread alone. Then the devil takes him up high on the top of the temple, the top of the portico, and points down and says, if you jump, the angels will save you. It will be spectacular, and then everyone will believe without you ever having to teach one lesson in the synagogue. So jump. It is not good to test the Lord our God. Jesus absorbs the temptation and puts an end to it. The devil takes him up even higher, to a high mountain and shows him a panoramic view of all the kingdoms of the world. And he says, look, if you'll just follow me, I'll blanket the airwaves with ads and everyone will vote for you. Jesus absorbs that temptation too and puts an end to the sin within himself, vanquishes it. And we see in this vanquishing of these temptations a foreshadowing of the end of Jesus' life and what he does on the cross. He staunches the spread of sin and its effects, its wages, death. We begin to see in Jesus' temptations and is absorbing them and putting an end to them, the very crumbling, the beginning of the cracks and the foundations of sin and death's dominion over all of us. This is why we call Jesus and the grace he gives the free gift. The free gift. I've been pondering that phrase because a gift, by definition, is free, is it not? So why does Paul add the word free? Is this not a tautology? A repetitive phrase? The free gift? What if Paul is trying to teach us, though, the emphasis on what the gift does and the freedom it gives us within this domain of sin not to participate in it any longer? We're free because Jesus makes us free, shows us the way to freedom, and shows us that sin is not as interesting as freedom and the grace he gives. Remember that. Most of this sermon, if there's a big flaw in this sermon, is that I've spent a lot of time talking about sin. Sin's not as interesting as Jesus and what Jesus does to help us and free us from sin. On the cross, he takes all the sins of the world, injustice, cowardice, lies, fear, expediency, betrayal, and ultimately violence, and puts them to death. He finishes them. He vanquishes them. They end in him. He doesn't return. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, no. He absorbs the violence. Save himself, no. He doesn't force the salvation. He receives the penalty. 
and takes it into himself all the way to the grave. And therefore, God highly exalts him and gives him the name that is above every name, even the name of sin and death. And raising him from the dead, he pronounces the end of death's reign. And we see the first fruits of new creation and new life and the promise of resurrection then and there on the other side of the empty tomb begins to spread. I remember Renee and the way that sin and death began to spread in her life and in her family's life. Renee and her husband Ralph had two children, and their son Derek was killed one day riding his motorcycle, not his fault, drunk driver, crossed the center line. There was no hope. And Derek was taken from them at the age of 22. And Renee said, he was my buddy. Our daughter was my husband, Ralph's buddy, but he was my buddy. God took him away. I said, I don't know. I don't know. Renee, God's with you. She said, but you can see this devastation on my family. Now on my daughter, now on my husband. And you could see, I won't go into detail, but you could see the ways that sin and death began to spread throughout their family and the family began to unravel on the other side of losing Derek. The saddest stories began to unfold. And over the years, I would have conversations with Renee and she would tell me how she was doing and she'd say, I'm trying. I'm trying to forgive that man. I'm trying to forgive him, but it's just so hard. I said, Renee, it's all right. God gives you all the time in the world. Keep going. One day, someone in the church tapped me on the back and the shoulder. I turned around. It was Renee. She looked different. She looked buoyant, free, alive. I said, Renee, how are you doing? She said, I forgave him. I finally decided I forgive that man. I forgave him. That's Renee. That's wonderful. And in that moment, I could I could see death being vanquished and the good news begin to spread. 